So at the beginning of that Easter, that first Easter morning, Jesus revealed himself to the women of the church. And in that small, subversive way, he turned the world upside down. And he was reminding us from the very beginning that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And this idea that these second-class citizens were the first to hear the gospel. So this morning, as we declare the proclamation of the resurrection of our Lord, I invite you all to stand. And together first, the women of the church will declare, and then together the church in unison. Women say it with me. Alleluia, alleluia. We proclaim the resurrection of the Savior. Alleluia, alleluia. Christ is risen. Please stay standing as we sing our first hymn. Please continue standing and read with me the call and response. We're glad to have Brother Steve at the piano today. Yesterday we had lost so much. We lost the light. We lost the argument. We lost love. We lost life. We lost God. We lost Jesus. But this morning we found the tomb empty, the morning bright, the gardener walking, the stone rolled, the disciples running, the women proclaiming, the resurrection awaiting. Jesus risen. risen. It is good we have found our way here. This is Easter Day. Love, Love is back. back. Good, good morning. morning. Shall we pray? Our gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you this day that we serve a risen Savior, that we know he's in the world today because he's in our hearts. He's in our church. And Lord, we pray that as we worship together this day, that truly we may worship in spirit and in truth, that those who lead us might be led by you and by your spirit, that those who are not here this day, that you would be with them in a special way. Bless those who have uh, things on their hearts today, Lord. You understand and you know, and we thank you so much, and we praise you, our risen Savior. And we ask all these blessings in God's name, in Jesus' name, amen. Our first scripture this morning is going to be from Acts. If I can find it, excuse me. Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 43. Then Peter began to speak to them, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and who does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent me to the people of Israel, preaching peace of Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. The message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were with him, oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he is, did both in Judea and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not 
to all the people, but to those who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. And all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The word of God for the people of God. Our next scripture reading is 1 Corinthians verse 15, I mean chapter 15 verses 19 through 26. If our hope in Christ is good for this life only and no more, then we deserve more pity than anyone else in the world. But the truth is that Christ has been raised from death and as a guarantee that those who sleep in death will also be raised. For just as death came by means of a man, in the same way of the rising death comes from by the means of a man. For just as all people die, in the same way all will be raised to life because of their union with Christ. But each one will be raised in proper order. Christ, first of all, then at the time of his coming, those who belong to him... Then at the end will come, Christ will overcome all spiritual rulers, authorities, and powers, and will hand over the kingdom to God the Father. For Christ must rule until God defeats all enemies and puts them under his feet. The last enemy to be defeated will be death. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our gospel text this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, and we will be reading verses 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings laying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rather rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had been laying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? 
Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. The word of God for the people of God. So as some of you might know, I have spent a fair amount of time flying in the last month. I've gone to two separate conferences, one in Boston Another one's St. Louis, and you might say, why did you fly to St. Louis? I don't know either. I should have driven. But this has led me on to eight different planes with four different layovers and two gracious late-night rides from my dad picking me up from the airport because for some reason I can't figure out how to land back in Memphis before midnight. I have no idea how. On one hand, I love these conferences. I get to meet people in my field from colleges all over the United States doing wonderful things in a way that makes me both jealous of their resources and opportunities and excited for the potential of what I'm doing at Rhodes. Also, I get to people watch. People watching in the airport is one of my favorite things because you see an insane amount of people in suits just running for their lives. You see hordes of ball teams from high schools and colleges all dressed in the same clothes, walking together with those silly neck pillows like this is a normal thing to walk with. But on the other hand, I hate these conferences. I hate being away from Alicia, from the girls. Uh, before this month, I could, I could count on one hand the number of times that I'd been away from Winnie for two nights in a row. I could count on two hands the times I've been away from Eden for that long. I love tucking my girls into bed. I love getting to see them first thing in the morning with their cranky faces. And the way they've responded to me being gone, I think they like it too. So the time away is hard, but it makes the coming home glorious. You haven't experienced joy like a hug from Winifred June after you've been gone for a few days. She like attaches to you. It's like a backpack just on the front. There's something about reunions. There's something about seeing someone you love after a time of away. Something about seeing someone you did not expect to see again that is beautiful. And as we join in the joy and in the chorus of this Easter Sunday this morning, it's hard not to notice the feeling of reunion in the stories of the disciples as they see their Savior, their Lord, and their friend they thought was lost. When we think about the Easter story, it is so easy to, to see the miracle of the risen Christ that we sometimes gloss over the people in his life. 
Because of the glory of what is happening to Jesus in this story, we tend to miss this mix of sadness and joy that is in the responses of those closest to him when they see this empty tomb. But John's gospel focuses so deeply on this sadness, this joy, these cavalcades of emotions. And tradition gives us a reason for that. As Sunday school, Sunday school scholars know, throughout the gospel, the writer refers to one of the disciples as the one Jesus loved. And we traditionally understand this to be John himself. Now, Mark and Luke are traditionally not a part of this story. They're friends of Paul that come later. And though Matthew was one of the twelve, his gospel is not really written as a personal story. But John continually brings himself up in these stories, not with his own name, but with this understanding that Jesus loves him. So on this Easter morning, let's look at this personal story and understand the emotion that this writer is putting into this story of his friend. First, we see Peter and John's response. Now, as we've already stated this morning, this is not something they discovered on their own. I don't know if they were oversleeping or if they were just dejected. Jesus told them quite a few times, you know, three days later, something's going to happen, but they did not seem too keen on figuring out what it was for one reason or the other. They hear from Mary Magdalene that the tomb is open and that Jesus is gone. Mary comes to them and says, somebody's come and took Jesus's body. And they start running. I don't know if it's because I've been watching the Ocean's Eleven movies this week for some reason, but it feels like the scene in a heist movie when the security guard or the casino owner realizes that they've been made. And they've realized that someone's off with all of their cash because they just start booking it to see what's going on. But John, in the heat of this moment, in the passion of this story, still stops to tell us that he is faster than Peter. <laughs> I don't know if this is a show of superiority, a show of devotion, or really just putting one over on an older man. Is it a playful ribbing of his friend? Or is it a comment on his joy, his unbridled excitement of what is going on? It could be any or all of these things. We can already see so many emotions in these few words. Fear, worry, trepidation, excitement. What is also interesting is that this race doesn't end with excitement as it seems both of them walk away believing Mary's first hypothesis. Someone has taken the body of Jesus. To them in this moment, this wasn't an act of divine resurrection, but rather an act of mundane vandalism. And so they go home, dejected. But Mary didn't respond with dejectedness, though. She responded with grief. She stays there grieving her Lord and friend all over again. In that moment, for her, it was Friday again. Peter and John's story might have been an action and a comedy. 
Mary's story is more of a drama. She sees two angels sitting where Jesus was laying, and through her tears, she repeats herself again. They've taken my Jesus, and I don't know where they've laid him. And she turns around, and she sees them there, but she doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's the gardener. And he asks why she's crying, and she says the same thing she's said twice now. She even says, if you're the one who took him, just let me know where you placed him, and I will take him back. So Jesus calls her name, and in that moment, her eyes are opened. In that moment, she realizes him to be who he is. And because of that, she does not leave that place dejected, but rather she leaves that place feeling the unescapable joy of seeing the risen Lord. And she leaves that place proudly proclaiming that Jesus lives. I share these two stories today specifically to point out how different they are from each other. It'd be an easy sermon for me to stand up here and say we should be like Mary and not like Peter and John. It wouldn't even be a bad sermon, I don't think, because grief is important. Sitting in our despair is important. Mary feels deeply the absence of Jesus, and it's in sitting in that absence, not pretending it's not there, but rather facing it, that Jesus makes herself, himself known to her. How many of us have had faith like that before, where we have known Jesus, we've heard of Jesus, we might have grown up in the church hearing the words, but when the darkness comes, is when God makes himself known to us for the first time. Even more so, how many of us can look back on our lives after realizing that all of the time that we felt like God wasn't there, that his face was there right beside us all along? Mary's story is a beautiful one, and rightfully so. She is, of course, the first evangelist. She's the first that is telling the good news of the risen Christ. Maybe you're coming to know Jesus looks a little bit more like Peter and John's story, though. Maybe you heard the news and came running, only for Jesus to be nowhere to be found. Maybe you saw hints of him, but nothing made sense, like he was just in the other room. Maybe you were like John, trying so hard to show yourself approved by God, showing that you could run harder and faster than anyone else, that you missed the truth of the resurrection. Or maybe you're like Peter, jumping headlong into faith, running deeply into the empty tomb, only to not be able to make heads or tails of what you discovered upon entering. Or maybe like John, once you get close enough to the truth, you hold back, not stepping in scared to see what happens when you go inside and really let the news of the risen Lord change you. All of these things make you finally come to know Jesus to actually take time. It makes it time, take time to, to understand what is going on. But maybe when it finally happens, just like it happened with Peter and John, Jesus makes himself known to you quietly like an old friend. 
Like I said earlier, it would be easy for me to hold up Mary's story and say, this is the way this should be done. This is the example of a life of faith done right. It would be easy to make Peter and John's resurrection story a story of mistakes and missteps. But like I said, Peter and John still see the risen Lord. They're not worse off because of it. They're still the same disciples who still carry the word to the world. Jesus still came for them, and Jesus still comes for us. So maybe you don't see yourself in Mary or in Peter or in John's story. But I think that's okay. These stories just remind us that this faith, this life, stems from an interaction with resurrection. It doesn't matter if you've been on this journey for 50 years or for five months. If coming to this point was an easy walk or a hill that it felt impossible to climb, if you'd heard of Jesus your whole life or if you'd just met him this week, your experience of Christ is yours. And it's beautiful and it's holy. There are innumerable reasons to be excited about the Easter story. But to me, the thing that fascinates me the most is that these encounters with Jesus we have don't leave us the same as we were before they happened. As we sit here this Easter morning, we sit with folks from different walks of life, from different backgrounds, with different stories. Not a one of us came to recognize Jesus at the same time, at the same place, or in the same way. But whenever and however we find ourselves face to face with Christ, that's when God starts doing what God does best. God starts working on us, changing us, and slowly and surely making us more as God wants us to be. A change that wouldn't be possible without the resurrected king. Now, Friday night, as we commemorated the death of Jesus on the cross at our Good Friday service, Alicia had us take black stones representing all of our fear and our guilt and our hatred and place it on the altar. These black stones represented our pains, our fears, our hate, anything that was keeping us from God and anything that an interaction with God begins to work out of us, to need out of us. We left these stones at the altar because the body and the blood of Jesus give us the opportunity to lay those burdens down. And you'll see those stones aren't here anymore. Instead, flowers have bloomed. This is the beauty of the resurrection. While seeing the pain and torment, the death of our God on a cross might bring us to repentance. Seeing the empty tomb, though, seeing the risen Lord gives us an opportunity for sanctification, for growth, for change. As I've been pondering this Easter story this week, I tried to figure out what my resurrection story looked like. Did it look like Mary's? Did it look like Peter's? Did it look like John's? I have no idea. 
I really can't figure it out to the point where when I was writing this sermon at first, I tried to shove myself into it. And Alicia said, that doesn't sound like you at all. So I don't, I can't figure out how to share myself and my experience with Jesus well, because I'm still figuring it out. But that does not mean that the resurrection is not constantly showing itself to me every day. That does not mean that I am not encountering Christ daily, sometimes feeling like it's for the first time. Now, of course, Alicia would stand up here and be able to tell you the day, hour, and minute in which she met Jesus for the first time. And that is a beautiful story. But as I've struggled to explain my faith, even putting it to words from time to time, as cynicism and doubt questions get in the way, the beauty of resurrection is that Jesus doesn't need our stories to make blooms of new life come forth. No matter what my story is, my heaviness, my darkness, my pain is welcome at the foot of the cross. And as I lay there, God goes to work, making me alive again, shaping me slowly, pruning me to fit more into the kingdom of God. I can't help but see how Mary sees Jesus, mistakes him for a gardener to be an important point Because what does a gardener do but prune, but shape and slowly allow growth and change to happen? Maybe the kingdom of God is not just a kingdom, but is a garden where we are all growing and becoming more beautiful together. An early church father whose name I'm going to fail to pronounce So I'm not even going to, well, I'm going to try. That would be rude to not tell you who I'm talking about. His name is Athenagoras. I think that's right. Said, the resurrection is not the resuscitation of a body. It is the beginning of the transfiguration of the world. God is slowly pruning and changing and making the world to be as God would have it to be. And God's doing it by changing us. God's doing it by allowing us to encounter the risen Christ, whether through tears or joy or stubbornness or questions or doubt or calm acceptance. We just have to meet Christ and let that relationship change us. And in doing so, God can use us to change the world. May we pray.